Please support the Climate Change and Happiness podcast. See the donate page at climatechangeandhappiness.com. The climate is changing at an accelerating pace. Thousands of residents and tourists have been evacuated from the region. No one country can solve this problem. There's really one key message that emerges from this report. We are out of time. Welcome to Climate Change and Happiness, an international podcast that explores the personal side of climate change, your feelings, what the crisis means to you, and how to cope and thrive. And now, your hosts, Thomas Doherty and Panu Pikala. Well, hello, I'm Thomas Doherty. And I am Panu Pikala. And welcome to Climate Change and Happiness. It's our podcast, uh, the show for people around the globe who are thinking and feeling deeply about climate change and other environmental issues. And uh, this is a place where we do allow ourselves to be with our thoughts and our feelings and our emotions. And um, today we have a special guest, someone that I've been able to work with in the past and I've not met for about a decade. Hello, I'm Louise Chala. I'm a professor emerita at the University of Colorado in Boulder, and um, I'm part of the program in environmental design there. And now that I'm retired, I, I work with their community engagement design and research center primarily. I have a workplace there and I help to create the center. So I'm very much involved in um, how do you bring research and design, which means really the entire physical world out there, including the natural world together on um, big environmental and social topics of our time. And um, I came to that from a background initially in, in child development, that's my master's and education. And then as I became discovered what I'm really interested about is what children learn outside the classroom when they are out and about in their communities, both socially, culturally, and about the natural world and their cities. And so I did a doctorate in environmental psychology, where we focus on people's relationships with the, the physical world out there and it's a discipline that's been around since the 1970s. I entered it in 1980. Um, but so that is my focus. What are our relationships with the world beyond ourselves and our immediate human societies? Yeah, that's great. And Louise is a pioneer in this research of children's experience of nature and a lot of what we know in terms of healthy child development and uh, people's environmental identities and the role of mentors comes out of Louise's work. And she's a bridge between the, the original environmental psychology people that were studying built places and design and the more recent focus on you know mental health and identity and environmental behaviors that we have now. So it's really great to have, have Louise and, um, We'll be talking about a lot. Pounder, do you want to get us started in our conversation? Warmly welcome, Louise, also from my, my part. And 
we have been exchanging some emails online and I of course know your work from environmental education re- research and many Finns have also been curious about studies of children's nature experiences and nature connection and this theme of having significant experiences in natural environments is is one part, part of that and and speaking of that well, would you like to share with us some of your own earlier journey you, you described some parts of your professional journey but uh, do you see some developments in your own childhood and youth and adolescence which led you towards this part of life and research well absolutely that's why i'm doing what i'm doing i was very fortunate to have a childhood where um I lived kind of between two places. One was a an old suburb of New York City, which had like the back border of our our home was a brook, and that went up to a marsh, and then beyond the marsh was a woods, and um, there was an old orchard and old woodlots and so forth. And so I had all of that, which is where I spent just countless hours growing up as a child. But I also had family in New York City, so I was. It was still a generation where I just had to show up for dinner, and um, I was able to roam around initially um, Greenwich Village, and then when the family moved to the edge of Chinatown and Brooklyn Bridge, um, that part of Lower Manhattan. So I've never really drawn a distinction between nature in cities and nature in towns, because at their best, even our densely inhabited places have nature in them. Certainly when you're a child, they have child-sized nature in them. And of course, New York City has great parks. It had the rivers. Um, and so I, that was so important to me that when I discovered There is a field of environmental psychology when I was a master's student doing a degree in child development and education. I realized immediately that that's what I want to spend my career doing. How how can we create places and cultures where every child in the world has an opportunity to have those kinds of opportunities to discover the natural world and the cultural world together? And, you know, of course, I'm not going to achieve that, but I, I think it's it's like our goal of creating, living in harmony with nature, as, as Rachel Carson said, you know, it's the horizon we work toward and having that horizon keeps us going. Um, and will we perfectly achieve it? Maybe not, but it still keeps us going. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's uh, there's so much I'm thinking for listeners who uh, are parents who are thinking about how they might want to be the best parents they can for their children or for all of us who are thinking about our own childhoods. You know, I grew up in Buffalo, New York, and had a certain view of nature based on that. And Pano, of course, has his his view and all the listeners all have their own places. Um, but since you've been doing this for a while, uh, I wonder if we can just help people to see the larger trends uh, first, and then we can drill down to some really specific, you know, con- concepts and things. But yeah. you, Louise, you must have seen a lot because you, you, you 
like you say, you have you, you yourself are of an age where you had you had a safe, you were lucky to have safe access to nature, and and the urban rural divide wasn't so black and white. And um, and then of course over the last few decades, we've had this whole child in nature movement and the work of Richard Louvre and this, this last last child in the woods kind of mm-hmm. insight that you know. The life had changed for people in the modern world being much more technological and nature and outdoors not seeing as safe and people must being much more concerned about liability and different views on parks and mm-hmm. i'm also thinking of david Sobel's work and other people what do you see as the broad trend that brings us to the present day like what, what do you think how, how would you how would you land us now you know given what you've seen over the last couple of decades well, you're entirely correct, Thomas, um, in saying within a generation and now moving into another second generation, um, there's been a transformation in terms of uh, children's freedom to autonomously explore the world around them. The world around them has been changing, as you said, more densely built. Um, more traffic, um, more crime. You know, I was a side of my work has been um, that for ten years I coordinated the Growing Up in Cities project for UNESCO, where we worked with children generally around ten to fourteen in low-income communities around the world. And I was reviving a project that the uh, urban planner and designer Kevin Lynch had um, created with UNESCO in the 1970s. So one generation later, and already we could track between his work and the work we were doing. We started this in the mid-1990s. I I coordinated it for 10 years. and now we have a, a local version of it that I help create with others called Growing Up Boulder, since we live in Boulder, Colorado. Um, but we could already over that generation see, you know, that cities were more crime. And it, not just children's perception, that's certainly what data showed as well. Um, and of course, more traffic and, and more... Um, more ethnic tensions. Hmm. Um, And of course, in part, that was because certainly in the United States, uh, we had a whole system to keep people in their place. Um, Hmm. But, uh, you know, by the mid-1990s, there was more immigration around the world. I mean, a new wave of immigration. We are a nation of immigrants, mostly, but new waves of immigration and the tensions those created within communities. So, we could really see those changes happening and yes, and screen and then screens, you know, mm-hmm. TVs change from the little gray thing when I was a child to all of their enticements and on smartphones and computers and iPods and all kinds of screens. And so that's been a, a dramatic change, of course, in children's lives. Um, really dramatic. And but on on a personal note, what I need to say is that you know when I was a child, playing up in the marsh or in the old 
woodlot or up in the woods, in the brook. I just assumed that was an eternal world, that the world of nature was eternal. And of course, I, I hadn't taken any classes in ecology or evolutionary history yet, but that was just my feeling as a child. But um, of course, we know it's it's not eternal, but... Um, and I was talking to a friend, the artist Patricia Johansson, who works with water in the landscape, so very, very connected to to the landscape. And she was saying the same thing, you know, out in the woods, it's just, just that this is an eternal place. And that was part of, part of, I think, why it was magical and comforting as well. And, but her grandchildren don't have that perspective at all. Um, so on a personal note, I never expected I would be writing about and researching about mm. how to help young people cope with our very rapidly changing planet. Yeah. Um, so that's been a personal trajectory for me. Thanks for sharing all that, and that brings us to the close connections between some of my my, my research and your re research, and I've greatly enjoyed your article from a couple of years back called Childhood, Nature Connection and Constructive Hope, with the subtitle, A Review of Research on Connecting with Nature and Coping with Environmental Loss. And this latter part, uh, as you hinted at now, uh, that's been more rare in environmental education sc scholarship and uh, for complex reasons, I, I, I think. And I really appreciate this wide-ranging review that you did and which highlights the point that it's all based on caring and connection because we heard where we care, as Thomas has a habit of, habit of say, saying, so both the em empathy and the feelings of loss and grief and various fear and anxiety and worry-related feelings, they are related to the same fundamental point. But uh, would you like to say something about these interconnections and, and that, that paper? Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, where that paper comes from specifically is that I was part of a actually a three-year project with um, North American Association for Environmental Education was the Center for Children and Nature Network, um, a cluster of universities, to look at how connection to nature was being measured. And um, so I was there with Thomas Beery, who is now Swedish in Sweden as a researcher. At that time, he was at the University of Minnesota. And um, we recognize that we have to make sure that measures for children are, are part of this effort. Um, the goal was to produce a practitioner's guide to um, assessing connection to nature, which is now freely available on the North American Association for Environmental Education website. But in the process of getting there, we we had all these different measures for, you know, mostly older children and adults. And as a group, we were reviewing them. We met in workshops and um, to try to select the ones that would be really most accessible and useful for people in the environmental education field. Um, and first, you know, Thomas and I noticed 
there's very little here for younger children. So we made sure that early childhood measures are included in that. Um, but in the process, yeah, I noticed these are all positive measures. Uh -huh. I mean, the assumption is that connecting with nature is always a happy experience. And yet I was aware, you know, I'd been since the 1990s, I'd been following studies that would ask children just really open-ended questions like, what do you think the world will be like in 50 years? Or, or what do you think it'll be like in 100 years? Or what do you think it'll be like when you're raising your own children? And most of the responses in from different countries, you know, just different interview approaches, drawing approaches, they were mostly dystopian, like really dystopian. And dystopian especially in terms of what was going to happen to the environment. Um, and yet, you know, the the children responding to those very open-ended questions were certainly, in my view, expressing connection with the natural world too. Mm -hmm. That's why they were so upset. <laughs> That's why they had such fearful, you know, fearful imaginings for the future. And then I had a doctoral student, Susie Strife, who did a study of the meaning of nature in the daily lives of children in a nearby city called Commerce City, um, industrial city, huge oil and gas refinery in it, um, loads of warehouses, idling trucks, etc., gangs, um, a number of super fun sites. And yet nature was very important to them wherever they could find it. I mean, it, it might be an overgrown ditch. It might be the big weedy overgrown corner of a, you know, basketball court, but it might be the strip of trees, but it was really important to them where they found it, where they could find it. And then simultaneously, she was doing all the same methods with children in a very economically upscale um, suburb of Denver, not, not far apart. Um, uh -huh. They tended to think of nature as the exotic vacations we go on as a fan to go to as a family, but either way, about eighty percent. When she she asked them this very open ended question, "Do you have any environmental concerns?" and about eighty percent in both community, it didn't matter which one, had these, you know, expressed themselves in ways that hit me in the stomach. I mean, they said things like, I'm really sad because my my grandson or my great nephew is going to have to experience the end of the world. Or I'm really sad because all the animals are going to die. Um, and I mean, these really powerful statements to me. That was definitely part of their connection to nature. Um, and, and so that's where that review, where I took these two literatures, connection to nature and all the good things it's about, which it is, and how it's being measured. And then this other research on children's fears and worries and sadness about what is happening to our planet um, and brought them together to say, this is, you know, this difficult side is a side of connecting to nature too. And, and 
you know, given that one of the things that comes out of the coping with environmental loss literature is the importance of opening in a space to feel you can freely express your emotions, and which I know has been very important part of your work, Thomas and Pano. I, I see it's a very important part of your thinking about this as well. And um, and yet, um, my friend Maria Ojala, who I brought over here for a while, and um, and you know, in her work with with in Sweden, she said she thinks maybe it's Swedish children feel they have to be cool all the time. Mm-hmm. And if you're cool, you can't let anybody know you're worried about anything. Um, and um, and children talking about, you know, if they bring up concern about what's going on to the, with the planet, being told, you know, we don't have time for that in the classroom. Um, or actually being laughed at by their peers. And, and you know, we, we have a culture which tends to put authentic emotions under wraps. Um, and so it's just put me on my current path where I'm really thinking about what are the different thing opportunities we can create for young people to, um, to feel they can, you know, acknowledge and be open about this difficult side of being connected to nature and um, how can we help them with that process? Mm. Yeah. I just want to speak to the listeners as you're, as you're listening. This is, this is one of our, we've been doing this podcast for over a year, but this is one of the first times we've got into this particular area of child development. And um, just, just so listeners know there's, there's people have been studying this for years. People like, Louise and people like David Sobel and Peter Kahn and Carol Saunders. And, you know, so there's a whole like academic literature that's, that's been recognizing this, but it is, it is our, all of our task, right? Is every time we bring up children in nature in any conversation, we end up having to go through this mini rite of passage, even in the conversation where we have to then confront, okay, we're in this world and we have all this stuff and the climate change. And it is, it is daunting. Everything and you know, as John Muir said, everything is linked together. When you pull on one thing in the universe, it's hitched to everything else. So we don't have the luxury of just talking about children in a in a, in a meadow with butterflies only. We have to re- realize, well, there's different social classes and different access and different places in the world, and and there is and kids are smart. They're very smart, and they they see they see all the news, and they have their own thoughts and ideas about it. So, it, you know, I love the mm-hmm. fact that, Louise, you're just listening to kids. You know, it's this brave listening of research where we're just like, let's just see what's actually happening out there. But that's takeaway for, for parents. So if we want to bring it, bring this larger world, we don't want to get stuck in this world conversation because people start spinning and then they become disempowered. So how does this come back down to actual parenting and our own, how we live our lives? Um, could you say a little bit? This hide, the idea that I think about as a parent that I find helpful coming out of a lot of this research is this idea of joint attention, the idea that of, of a, an adult and a young person looking at nature together at any age from infancy to, to adult peers and um, you know how that plays out in zoos and different natural places um, and how that's help, helpful for our emotional development. Would you Could you say a little bit about that, Louise? Because I know that's a big part of 
some of these things are a big part of your work. Yeah. So, you know, I think all of this does tie in um, with what you were saying earlier, Thomas, about kids being physically separated from nature now by rules about safety and always being supervised. And there's not so much of it around, although, Mm -hmm. again, those kids in Commerce City were able to find it wherever it was um, when they were free to move around outside. Um, But another piece of my research has been um, significant life experiences. And um, that started of area of research and environmental education that started in 1980 with someone named Tom Tanner who said, well, if our goal as environmental educators, and I hope this would be the goal of parents as well, is to, you know, produce children, people who really know and care about the natural world, then, you know, what were the formative experiences in, in people who were exemplars of that kind of caring? Um, and, but the, it started with, um, really interviewing, surveying people who were exemplars, which makes sense, but so, um, staff and leading conservation organizations, environmental educators, um, people who had become professionals in learning about and caring about the natural world. Um, and so again, my question was, well, what if we, we kind of can push that and what if I, what if I went out there and I talked to the widest group of people I could, you know, people who were young and old and men and women and working class as well as, um, professionals and high school education as well as PhDs and, um, doing very different kinds of activism, including defending their community from yet one more, you know, incinerator being put in next door. Um, And and so I did that, and I I did that research. I did it all around the state of Kentucky where I lived at the time, and then I I did it around Norway when I was a Fulbright scholar there. And um, what this research shows is that what comes out, the most often in terms of formative experiences are a time to kind of mess around out there in the natural world as a child, um, just, you know, free play, free exploration, but also important people. And that's what gets to the joint attention in your question, Thomas, which meant parents, grandparents, favorite uncle, whoever it might be, who, you know, went out in nature with you and looked at things together, that joint attention. Um, And it's so mundane. I mean, we do it all the time that the how profound it is, I think just escapes most people's awareness. Um, It starts around nine months old and you know, there's really, if you think of any environment, there are kind of an infinite number of things in it, and in most places, um, that we could uh, pay attention to. I mean, I'm in my study now. Mm-hmm. 
I've got hundreds of books there. I could pay attention to any one of them. Um, I could pay attention to the pattern in the wood on the floor. But so we have to learn to selectively pay attention. And we learn that with other people, you know, that the other people around us kind of indicate what's important to notice. And when people talked about their relationships with these important people in their lives when they were children, um, usually family members, rarely teachers, but sometimes teachers, but usually family members, um, that's what they were doing. You know, they were noticing things in nature together. They were taking time to slow down and notice things appreciatively. On the other hand, of course, we can be taught very early not to notice. I, I love the story of Bill Crane, a developmental psychologist who would watch little kids and their caretakers in public parks in New York. And he said, usually this is the scenario he would see. Something like this. A toddler sees a pigeon. It gets all excited about the pigeon. It's trotting after the pigeon. Um, and its caretaker grabs it and says, leave that dirty bird alone. Mm -hmm. Or come on, you know, we have to get home. No time for this. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, he said that's what he mostly saw. So joint attention. And then as people get older, it can be, it can be the fabulous teacher. Um, who takes you on field trips. Um, it can become your best buddy who you go exploring with. Um, it could become, you know, your outdoor camping leaders. Um, but those processes of joint attention, of showing, of kind of coming with us, both getting excited about what excites us and inviting us to get excited about what excites them outdoors in nature are, are really fundamental. And then when we get to the other side of it, noticing harm, noticing loss, noticing the wildfire that just burned down your community, very real to me, living on the edge of the woods. Um, and how do we deal with that together too? I think that those qualities of attention and what, how do we respond to what we see are, are really are a, a fundamental part of the whole process of relating with the world around us. Hmm. Thanks a lot for that, Louise. That's very, very rich and reminds of also the episode we did with the poet Kim Stafford, where we talked about Rachel Carson's sense of wonder, for example, the great little little book and the general topic of uh, retaining the ability to experience wonder, but also the ability to experience sorrow or, or sadness. And that's one part of the creative work nowadays in environmental education, trying to think about how encounters with sadness and loss, like the death of a small animal, which is a very common experience that children experience some sometimes. So how can the adults be with the child in, in a way which builds up skills of encountering grief constructively? So also for the listeners, that's one sort of practical example. And it requires also from the adults, you know, sort of res resistance to the desire to move away 
from sometimes either difficult or boring su- subjects. So much comes up, uh, much goes back to certain quite fundamental basics in, in education and patience seems to be one, one of them. And I've really enjoyed this con- conversation. Uh, 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 the time time is is running and we have to wrap up soon but what's on your mind thomas at this point yeah I, as a, as it often happens we we i want to talk more and more because we've opened up such rich uh rich things so we can go a little maybe go a little bit longer today because it's such a great topic but it's the best of times and the worst of times here because we in these times of fraught relationships with nature and climate change it it does help us to to remember what is important and come back to the basics of what healthy parenting is you know we're all uh, uh i think uh are you a parent louise i don't know of your background um yourself do you are you a parent yourself yes i have a granddaughter yeah 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 so we're all parents here and all of us have done this experience so i think that the challenge of a parent and well, let me let me let me rephrase that. I was about to say something that's kind of um, that's kind of um, has a blind spot because I was going to say the, the experience of parents today are that we have to hold all this all this negative stuff and all the joy and the wonder. But tr- I, as as we know, and as you know, Louise, that's always been the case. Depending on the neighborhood you're you're researching, right? So that's another big piece. As we understand global globally, people have always struggled with environmental degradation and threats and also found a sense of wonder and that's one of the resilience the great resiliences of children is they will find nature and wonder no matter where they live anywhere and all of us will find a pocket of nature and play and magic uh, and things like that so as the listeners think about this just just realizing that um we you know kids are actually quite resilient and that's developmentally part of their lives like they actually can talk about death they just reason about it in their in their own ways so um just opening you know as a, as families we need to all kind of open up to these things and then listen to each other um like one of my sayings is you know validate elevate create so it's like validate what the person's talking about whatever it happens to be elevated put it on a pedestal let's look at this and then let's get creative about it how do you know about it what should we do about it and things like that um yeah yeah, yeah. I would just like to say to that. Um, of course, they say it's always been the best of times and the worst of times, at, at least in our Western society. But, um, but we have to face our relations with the planet now. There's not going to be any way out. And I think that yes, that calls on great creativity from parents, teachers, our institutions, our children. Children like creative challenges in in my experience. It really, getting back to the opening up a space to discuss feelings, um, that's going to have to be part of it. And so I think that is at the center and moving from there. Um, And parents can be share their own ambivalence and their own, you know, sense of confusion. And children can understand that. They're very familiar with confusion and ambivalence. But I, I think the critical piece is that the things we're asked to do are actually, that are good for the planet, are good for us too. And I think one very important piece is 
helping families and and helping children recognize that um, the changes we need to make in our lives, some of them can actually make our lives better. We improve the quality of our lives that, you know, choosing lives of voluntary simplicity for the planet's part, choosing to invest some of our time and finding projects where we can all work to care for our local worlds together, those make our lives better. So the paths we need to take are actually good for us as well as good for the larger world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, co-benefits. We there's all kinds of co-benefits to all these sustainability things that we talk about. Um, yeah, Pane, what are you thinking about as we wrap up here? Well, I think that's a very, very important and also nice point to to end, end this very fascinating discussion, which could go on for a long time. And I think with Thomas, that whether we get, get a chance to talk with you again, again sometimes, that would be would be lovely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As I as I as we close, I just want we'll, we're going to put some links to some of Louise's. Uh, work and her research that's available online and some of the stuff that she's doing in boulder colorado you know reminding listeners about the episode we had recently with susan bodner the psychologist in new york city who is um working on a very parallel path about people's attachment to nature and they're using the idea the psychological concept of attachment to natural places and she's listening to people in new york and just listening to what they say and my insight and I, Louise, you can tell me what you think. I mean, this is extending the out of the research, but classic the classic takeaway in, in healthy attachment is that if a child has at least one caregiver of any kind, whether it be an aunt or a grandparent, it doesn't have to be a parent. If you have one healthy relationship, that usually leads to resilience in someone's life. And so I, I think if you have just at least one healthy mentor or one healthy nature mentor, I think that will be enough to give you a healthy connection with nature. I don't know if those two things are exactly similar. Well, they, I think they totally go together, Thomas, because all the things we were talking about in terms of going out and noticing things in the natural world and, and um, encouraging a sense of kinship and bonding with it and taking action to care for it, those all are done in a spirit of companionship, respect for the child's interests and feelings, acknowledgement of the adult's interests and feelings, and their being in that kind of positive, very interactive relationship that's respectful of both sides um, and respectful of the natural world. And that is at the very center of what you're you're talking about in terms of secure attachment theory great well that's a good takeaway um we'll wrap it up for today but uh louise i know you're busy with you know even though you say you're retired it sounds like you're actually quite active and doing a lot of neat stuff so i really am i'm impressed and i've learned so much from you i wouldn't be doing the work i'm doing without the work that you have done in the past i think pano can say the same so i really appreciate having time to chat with you and that you're still you're still in the game here just as much or more than ever so thank you very much um 
and you both have uh louise you have your good you have a good rest of the day and hana you have a really good evening okay the climate change and happiness podcast is a self-funded volunteer effort please support us so we can keep bringing you messages of coping and thriving see the donate page at climatechangeandhappiness.com